So a couple weeks ago, we talked about when we were talking about the knowledge of God. And one of his attributes is he is omniscient. He knows all things. And we tried to describe what he knows. And for Ava's sake, we, we kind of went from two directions. On this direction, he became familiar with every human challenge. Jesus went through the entire totality of the mortal experience. And he did it at an infinite level. How depressed has Jesus been? How much anxiety has he dealt with? Has he dealt with infertility? My daughter-in-law is really struggling right now because she can't get pregnant. Is he familiar with that struggle? Does he know that anguish and that pain? Every human experience, he has experienced every aspect of the human condition. And then coming from this direction, he knows me Intimately, scriptures say he has every hair of my head numbered. So what can a God who knows the whole human experience and knows me do? He can tailor those. He knows exactly which human experience I need to give me the greatest chance at salvation. I know this is not instinctive. How are you, Abraham? Very good. Pardon the tardiness. But I testify that your life and everything you face in your life is your very best chance at salvation. If someone else's life would have been better for you, a loving God would have given it to you. I believe wholeheartedly. In fact, let's turn there. Turn with me to 2 Nephi chapter 26. I know we sometimes pass over this scripture as if we really don't give it its full attention. But I would invite you to ponder the depth of what it is saying. 2 Nephi chapter 26. Just the very first part of 24. Now, if we're going to define his character, his attribute, his perfection, I would add this to the list. Whichever one this describes, this is a definitive characteristic of Christ. And what does it say? Abraham, Abraham just read that first sentence until it says world. Verse 24, 24 Second Nephi 26, 24. He doeth not anything, save it be for the benefit of the world. For he loveth the world. For he loveth the world. And we can take that as a very individual. He doesn't do anything in Jill's life that isn't for Jill's benefit. Isn't that what he's saying? That when we talk about his attribute of love, that means he doesn't do anything that isn't for your good. He wouldn't allow anything that wasn't for your good to happen to you. Isn't that what he's saying? He would not allow anything that wasn't for your benefit to happen to you. So all those defining moments of your life, maybe your dad died or maybe your dad lost a job and you had to move or a challenge that you've had to deal with, a disease you've had to struggle with. He wouldn't have done that if it weren't, what well, the scripture to say, for your benefit. 
That is the characteristic I want to talk about tonight, that he doesn't do anything save it be for your benefit. In the a couple other scriptures that kind of teach that same thing, let's turn to um, Liberty Jail Letter, section 122, verse 7. If thou should be cast into the deep, the billowing surge conspire against. Anyone want to finish it? Section 122, verse 7. One of my absolute favorite scripture verses. Know thou my son or my daughter. We want to emphasize that last thing, that he would not let any of those cast into the deep, the billowing surge, the very jaws of hell combining against you. He wouldn't let it happen unless. Who wants to read? Section 122, verse 7. Josh, you got it? Verse 7. And the sentence of death pass upon thee, if thou would be cast into the deep, if the billowing surge conspire against thee, if fiery wind or fierce winds become thine enemy, if the heavens gather blackness and all the elements combine to hedge up the way, and above all, if the very jaws of hell shall gape open the mouth wide, the, open the mouth wide after thee. Know thou, my son, that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. That is a hard truth. That the billowing surge that consumed you for a while was for your good. That he wouldn't do anything save it were for the benefit of the world. He loves the world. He wouldn't do anything. Let's do one more. Matthew chapter 7 this week. Come follow me. Turn with me to this week's Come Follow Me. Matthew chapter 7. Verse 7, he says, Ask and it shall be given unto you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened. For everyone that seeketh receiveth. Everyone that findeth to him, everyone that seeketh findeth, to him that knocketh it shall be opened. For what man is there among you whom his son asked bread would give him a stone? How many of you would be the kind of parent that a hungry child says, can I have bread, would give them a stone? How many of you are the kind of parent, verse 10, that if your son asked for a fish, you'd give him a serpent? Is there anyone in this room that would give a hungry child a rock? No. So he says, if ye then, being mortal, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven good gifts to them that ask? In other words, does Heavenly Father give stones? Does He give serpents? Is anything in your life a stone? Now there's the truth. He doeth not anything, save it be for the benefit of His children because He loves them. So a child born with mental retardation, what would you say? What could you definitively say? 
That was done for what reason? For the benefit of that child and everyone around them. Now that is a reality and I testify of that reality. Now let me tell you what makes that difficult. God knows what is best for me and he is doing that in my life. Now here's what makes that difficult. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. And while you're searching, go to Doctrine and Covenants 77. Revelation 5 and Doctrine and Covenants 77. So if you've got electronic scriptures, open up both. Doctrine and Covenants 77 and Revelation chapter 5. So, two windows, Doctrine and Covenants 77, New Testament, Revelation chapter 5. Let's start in Revelation chapter 5. Verse 1, John is taken into the celestial kingdom. Chapter 4, John is pulled up into the celestial kingdom. He sees Heavenly Father, and in verse 1, tell me what he sees that Heavenly Father has in his right hand. A book. A book written within and on the back side. So why would a book be written on the back side? It means you've done what? You have finished it, right? You've written all the way through the pages and it's finished. God has finished this book and it's written within and on the back side. So Joseph Smith asked the question, what is the book? Now flip to section 77. So now that we know Heavenly Father has a book in his hand, notice Joseph Smith asked the question, what is the book? Verse 6. Question, this is section 77, verse 6. What are we to understand by the book which John saw, which was sealed on the back with seven seals? Answer, we are to understand that it contains the revealed will, mysteries, and the works of God, the hidden things of his economy concerning the earth during the 7,000 years of its continuance or temporal existence. Fancy words to simply say what? That is why God does what he does. He has written the story in a book. Why the child was born with mental retardation? He wrote the answer in the book. Why every challenge you have faced has come into your life? He wrote the answer in this book. This book contains the revealed will, the mysteries, and the works of God, the hidden things of his economy. Why my brother died when he was 12 is written in that book. Why the challenges you have faced and how they are of your benefit is written in that book. And what did we say about the book? It's finished. He's not writing it. He is not writing the book of your life. He has finished it. He knows how it ends and he knows why you needed chapter three. Now, I believe there is a chapter in that book for every single one of you. I do not believe it is a generic book for us. I believe there is a chapter for every single one of you. I think Rachel has a chapter in that book that explains exactly what God has been doing in Rachel's life. And all of the difficult things 
and the explanation for those difficult things. The God who knows exactly what I need and is doing what is in my best interest to do is written in that book. There's a chapter for every single one of you. And he's, he knows the end. He knows why what happened in chapter 3 happened so that the book can end the way it ends. Now go back to Revelation chapter 5. What's the problem with the book? What's the problem with the book that has all the answers? The book, the book that explains why that happened and that happened and he was born this way and that happened. The book that explains exactly what God did for my benefit all along the way. What's the problem, Abraham? According to Revelation chapter 5, the problem is that no one can open it. No one can open the book because, verse 1, it's sealed. What does John do when no one can answer the book? Verse 4, what does John do? He wept. How many of you have wept because you don't understand what God is doing in your life? How many of you have wept because the book is sealed? And I can't go open it up and say, why, Lord? Why did this happen? All of those answers will come someday, but today they are sealed. In other words, what's he teaching? You don't get to know yet. I love the analogy from C.S. Lewis. God is like a surgeon who doesn't wake you up in the middle of the operation to make sure he should keep going. He doesn't explain in the middle of the operation what he's doing and why it hurts. He just finishes the job. So do you see the reality that I want to talk about today? God is doing what is in my best interest and I don't get the explanation. What, therefore, is going to be the reality of that dynamic? Some people will walk away from him because they can't see the answers. They can't see what he's doing in their life. One of the great tragedies of the New Testament is what they wanted him to do and what he actually did were not the same. Tell me what kind of Messiah the Jews wanted. They were captives to Rome. They had been captives. When, remember when they had a temple? And what goes hand in hand with having a temple? They had a king. What have they not had for, six, for 600 years? They have not had a king. They have not had a temple. During their temple ceremony, see, you and I go to the temple and we, endure, we enjoy a nice temple ordinance. Their temple ordinance was the, the, a king and a queen being enthroned. 
And they have not had a king and a queen. They have not had an identity. And now Jesus is doing all of these miracles. Go to John chapter 5. When all of a sudden he is feeding them miraculously, what thoughts are going to occur in their head? John chapter 5 is the feeding of the 5,000. What do they start with? Five barley loaves and two small fishes. How many people are fed? 5,000 men. They, they only counted the men. I don't know why, but they only counted the men. If every man is married and every, if every couple has at least two children, there were how many people there? 20,000. And Jesus fed them. And not only did they all get a little, what does it say? They, all, he, they were told. What were they told? Take as much as you want. They weren't told, take a little fish, take as much as you want. Everyone took as much as they wanted. And they were, what's the word here? Filled. And Jesus says, gather up the fragments. How many baskets do they gather up of what was not eaten? 12 baskets. How many do they start? They started with five bread loaves and two fishes. Seven objects would not have fit in 12 baskets. After everyone had all that they wanted, they gathered up 12 baskets. Now, verse 14, what did the Jews start to think? John chapter 5, verse 14. Tell me what the Jews are going to think. Sorry, John 6. We're not in John 5. We're going into John 6. Yeah, I'm sorry. Imagine that whole conversation, but go back to John 6. John 6 is the feeding of the 5,000. So verse 14, tell me what they think after he miraculously feeds them massive amounts of bread and fish. Then those men who may have seen the miracle that Jesus did said, this is of a truth and what's he going to do? What are they after? I want a Messiah that takes all my problems away. Is, I'm going to quit my job. Is that the prophecy of that prophet is a prophecy by Moses uh, where he says, a prophet that is greater than I shall come. Yeah, and what did Moses do? He, he, he was there and he did, the, he did the plagues and he took them out of Egypt. And then in the desert? He rained down food from heaven. And now a greater prophet than Moses is here, and I'm quitting my job. We're just going to follow him. In other words, they wanted a Messiah that solved all their problems. And so what do they do in verse 15? Tell me what they do in verse 15. They, they want to force him to be their king. I want Jesus to do what I want him to do. I want him to solve my problems the way I want my problems solved. Now, the whole rest of chapter 6 is what we call the bread of life, the Sermon on the Bread of Life. Tell me what he's basically saying with the Bread of Life sermon. I'm not going to do that. 
I am not going to solve the problems you want me to solve. Instead, I'll solve the problem of sin and death. I will not march on Rome. We are not going to conquer Rome. I will not be the king you want me to be. I will be the king you need me to be. But not that king. I know what you need. And I know what you're asking for. And what you're asking for is not what you need. So the whole sermon on the bread of life is, I'm not going to be that Messiah. Now, when they hear that, turn to verse 60. Tell me what they say. When my problems aren't solved the way I want them solved, what H word do they use? They use an H word. This is too hard. This is too hard. Now, again, why is he doing it? Tell me the reality. Why is he doing what he's doing? It's for their benefit. But because the book is sealed and I don't get that explanation, I don't get the explanation of why he's doing it. I can look at what he's doing and what can I see? This is too hard. This is too hard. This isn't what I wanted. And he says, you're right. It's what you needed. Now, verse 66. There are those who, when he does what is best for them and they don't see it, because the book is sealed and they don't understand why he's doing what he's doing and they think it's too hard. Tell me what they do in verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Now, who, who walked no more with him? The curious people who came to see the miracles? Who walked no more with him? His disciples. Now tell me why they walked no more with him. Because he wasn't doing what they wanted him to do. How many of you could honestly say that your life has turned out exactly the way you wanted it to? How many of you, as young as you are, babies, how many of you, as young as you are, could honestly say, I've had a major turnabout in the path of my life that I was not expecting? Now, here's the reality. What was that? A stone or bread? Was that major event in your life Stone or bread? Maybe it was particularly stale. Doctrinally speaking, we all say, okay, I admit it's bread, but I don't like it. Now, is it okay to not like it? I'm sure it is. It was not your favorite I don't think Joseph Smith was thrilled with Liberty Jail. Yay, I love this. No, but what's the reality? All these things 
shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. Yep. So one of the great realities of this life and one of the great challenges that you are going to face throughout this life is he is not going to hold back on doing what is best for you. And he's not going to explain it. Now, do you take that harsh reality? Do you take that stale bread and walk away? The sad reality of a lot of his disciples is that it's too hard. It's too hard. And they walk away. This is one of my absolute favorite moments of Peter's life. Peter turns to the 12 and say, will you also go away? And so symbolically, I am standing in front of this class today telling you your life is not going to turn out the way you wanted it to. There are going to be major turmoil events that shake you. Things you never thought you'd have to deal with. Things that are for your benefit. And he is not going to explain why they are for your benefit. We don't get that luxury. That book is sealed for the time being. And so, I'm going to ask the same question. Will you also go away? Will you also go away when it's hard? Now, I love what Peter said. Tell me what he said. Where would I go? Where else would I go? Hard or not? Where else would I go? I trust that what he wrote in that book is for my benefit. I have, a, I have a theory. I believe that when that book is unsealed and handed out, we are going to hear all over this universe this sound. Ready? Oh! That's what we're going to hear. When I get to read the full story, when I get to read every story of my chapter and I get the explanation, when I finally get the explanation, how it was for my benefit, I testify we're all going to say, oh, can I give you just one example? Probably the most difficult thing Joseph Smith had to deal with, especially in his young life, was the death of his older brother, Alvin. If you've read church history, who was his most faithful supporter? Not Hiram at the time. Hiram will be faithful later. But who was Joseph's most faithful supporter? Alvin. Who was behind Joseph in all of that persecution when everyone turned against Joseph? Who was behind Joseph the whole time? Alvin, and tell me what God did in that crucial moment when Joseph needed someone to be behind him. 
Tell me what God did. He took him. No explanation. Just took him. Now, could Joseph justifiably said, restoration, all of this, it's too hard. And you took away the one person who was my biggest supporter. This is too hard. Now, fast forward years. God wants to reveal one of the most glorious doctrines of the restoration. He doesn't just come down and say, hey, Joseph, there's a way to save the dead. Instead, you remember what he did? Joseph, let me take you on a tour of the celestial kingdom. Come with me to the celestial kingdom. And he opens up the gate and he walks Joseph Smith into the celestial kingdom. And he says, look, there's Adam and Eve and look at all these great people. There's your mom and your dad, your dad who were still alive. His mom and dad were still alive when he saw them in the celestial kingdom. What must that have done for him? And then Heavenly Father said, who's that over there, Joseph? And Joseph looks and it's Alvin. And Heavenly Father says what? Okay, end of vision, see ya. And he walks away. <laughs> now tell me what Joseph does. <laughs> and what is born? Tell me what is born in that moment. The work for the dead. How many people will be blessed because Alvin died? How many people will thank Joseph for what happened because Alvin died? Don't you think there was a moment where Joseph went, oh, that's why. As hard as Alvin's death was, how many people will be blessed because of it? Not millions billions will thank Joseph and what gave birth to that moment Alvin's death do you believe that we can honestly say that Alvin Smith's death was for Joseph Smith's benefit was it easy but was it for Joseph's benefit Now, I testify that everything he does in your life is bread. Not stale, not tough. Everything he does, he doesn't do anything save it be for the benefit of his children because he loveth his children. Every challenge, every obstacle, every pain, every glorious moment is for our benefit. But I testify, you don't get the answers yet. You don't get to see how the story ends yet. And so it's going to be hard. And in those hard moments where I don't understand, why is this happening to me? I don't understand. He's going to say, are you going to walk away? Are you going to walk away because it's hard? 
and I want you to hear Peter. Where would I go? No one else loves me like he does. No one else has what he has for me. Hard or not, someday I'll understand. We see it again in the New Testament. How many people were greeting Jesus at the triumphal entry? If you read all four accounts, there were thousands of people cheering him on when he came to Jerusalem on Sunday. Where will many of those thousands be on Thursday or Friday? Some of the very people that cheered him coming into Jerusalem will stand in front of Pilate's palace and say, crucify him. Because guess what Jesus didn't do when he came to Jerusalem? What do you think they'd heard? What had they heard? Why were they cheering him on? Why were so many people there at the gates of the city cheering his entrance into Jerusalem? Tell me why. What had they heard? Miracles. How many miracles did he perform that week in Jerusalem? One. Can you name it? He killed a fig leaf. He killed a fig tree that was not producing fruit. That's the only miracle. Did he raise the dead other than himself the last week? Did he cure any blindness that last week? Did he feed the 5,000 or walk on the water? So they cheered him on. They were there on Sunday cheering him because he's going to come into Jerusalem and do all those miracles. And when he did, where will they be on Friday? Crucify him. Crucify him. That's the story of the New Testament. When he doesn't do what you want him to do and instead does something hard, will you walk away? It is my testimony that those hard moments are for your benefit. They are for your good. And if you stay the course because no one else can offer you what he offers you, you will see why he did what he did. Someday you will have your own moment and praise his name for what he did. I leave you with one of my absolute favorite stories. Um, None of you remember one of my absolute favorite apostles. His name was Marvin J. Ashton. Has anyone ever heard of Marvin J. Ashton? Such a great man. Marvin J. Ashton told this wonderful story. A beautiful little blind girl was sitting on the lap of her father in a crowded compartment in a train. A friend seated nearby said to the father, let me give you a little rest. And he reached over and took the little girl on his lap. Remember, this is a blind girl. A few moments later, the father said to her, do you know who is holding you? No, she replied, but you do. 
Elder Ashton, our trust and our relationship with our Heavenly Father should be one similar to that of the little blind girl and her earthly father. When sorrow, tragedy, and heartbreaks occur in our lives, wouldn't it be comforting if when the whisperings of God say, do you know why this has happened to you? We could have the peace of mind to answer, no, but you do. I leave you with my solemn testimony that all the answers are written in that book. Every explanation, everything you've ever wondered about why, why this, why that, how in the world did you think that was for my benefit? Someday, let's read it. Let's go back to Revelation chapter five. We need to read the rest. Someday this will happen in all of our lives. Revelation chapter five. Let's go to verse four where John is weeping because no one was able to open the book. Verse four, I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the book, neither to look thereon. One of the elders said unto me, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And behold, and I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne and the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. That lamb can open the book and someday he will. Someday he will explain all of the challenges that you have faced. In the meantime, when it's hard, and he says, do you know why you were born into that family? Do you know why that happened to your father? Do you know why that happened to you? We'll get that answer. But until then, the book is sealed. Don't walk away from the person who loves you the very most because you don't have the answers as to why he's doing what he's doing. I testify they are for your benefit. And someday you'll understand. Of that, of him, of his love for you, I testify. No one loves you more than he does. No one knows what's best for you better than he does. But you don't get to hear the answers yet. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.